Welcome to the Mac PFD Spark Podcast. This podcast is meant to inspire you to take the next step in your development journey as a faculty member. We're really excited to bring you all sorts of content, from inspiring you to teach or supervise differently, to leading and managing your team, to thinking about new creative ways or humanistic ways to actually do your work, and finally, to up your game in your scholarly practice. Are you excited yet? I certainly am. So sit back, listen, and enjoy this latest episode of the Mac PFD Spark Podcast. Hello and welcome to the 29th episode of Mac PFD Spark. Today we will be listening to two discussions about scholarship. First, we will have the opportunity to listen to Dr. Liliana Komen discuss how to improve problem-based learning. Next, we will be hearing about the Key Literature in Medical Education, or Key Lime, podcast from Dr. Jonathan Sherbino. Please enjoy the episode. All right. Hello, everyone. I'm here with someone who is an absolute pleasure to work with and an amazing person in her own right, Dr. Liliana Coleman. So would you like to say hi to everyone, Liliana? Yes. Hi, everybody. I'm delighted to be here. Now, Liliana is within the School of Rehabilitation Sciences, and she has been a leader in faculty development really within our community. And now she is bridging into a new phase of her career, aka retirement. And I thought that this would be an amazing chance for us to archive some of her wisdom hard earned over the years, especially around some of the areas that she's very passionate about. And one of the areas is problem-based learning. She has been a coach of teachers. She has been a faculty developer, and she has been a teacher herself in PBL for many years. So I thought I would ask her to share with us some pearls that she has for all of those teachers who might be coming across PBL for the first time. Liliana, what are some things that you think are common things that often junior teachers encounter doing PBL? Well, as you said, I have been tutoring in a problem-based learning context for 20 years now, and I had a lot of discussion with our tutors coordinating problem-based tutorial courses. Some of the main issues or difficulties that our tutors have are around when to ask the right question, to find the right time to ask the right question, to facilitate the process and get our students to discuss or take a topics at a deeper level. Yeah. So, I mean, I've tutored a little bit here and there over the years, and that resonates with me as being a key component, right? Because the problem-based learning only gets you so far. The tutors, they are to really help you probe the topic deeper so that you can get into different nuances that you might not have otherwise known that you need to get to. So what are some tips to overcome that? How do you figure out when to ask that great question? Well, one of our primary role in tutorial is to facilitate the process. So we are responsible to facilitate an open, safe learning climate. Facilitating the process means asking open-ended questions to challenge students and stimulate healthy discussions. 
we are responsible in a way to elicit from our students alternative perspectives to make them see or elicit from the students opposing views to make them see the consequences of discussions the the consequences of their decisions we are responsible to indicate i think when the breadth and the depth of the discussion in a topic is uh, or has been achieved we have to encourage the students to check for accuracy of information that they bring to the discussion in the tutorials and facilitate individual skill development for each of our group members there are all other kinds of things that the tutors are responsible for and sometimes it feels overwhelming for new tutors promoting problem solving skills in critical thinking is extremely important for us as tutors we need to ask students to examine the facts and the phenomena and use evidence when they bring in discussion use evidence that maybe from cellular level to societal level we need to encourage students to be critical of the hypothesis that they advance and encourage them to define issues to be clear in defining issues defining their own learning objectives synthesizing the information and applying it to the problem that is under discussion and i can go on and on <laughs> yeah 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 for sure i mean to me it sounds like what you're saying is that you've got a couple of key things you need to do as a tutor you need to make sure you're steering them in the right direction so they hit all the points you want them to explore the different aspects of the problem not just at a singular level so it's not just all about pharmacology but it's also about society and it's also about all those other things and then on top of that you want to fold in some skill building around critical appraisal that they can take forward when they're trying to learn new content and all the while you're trying to use this as a vehicle to be able to help them learn content along the way because as the evidence shows more and more it's really about the content mastery that these sessions are really about and and although we can teach them some skills about how to critically appraise and other things like that the most important thing is that they're getting through some of that content and doing it in a fun way and i think that that's the real gift of what pbl can bring is mm-hmm. is creating a sense of community around some some content and making it feel less lonely when you're trying to struggle through because we know that if we just throw some textbooks and give some study time to our trainees they're so smart <laughs> they can probably <laughs> learn it will they be as good at conversing about it will they be as good at being able to articulate with their patients with their colleagues what it is that they're trying to explain that's probably where PBL really has yes. its ability to help synthesize some of that you're right Teresa and it's also i want to say it's not all only about content and what is discussed is also about us as tutors promoting an efficient group functioning you know we don't only learn content but we learn how to function in a group setting and you know as healthcare providers we don't work in silos we work in teams so in tutorial groups the tutors should be uh, paying attention to how they facilitate the process not only what the content is so there are a lot of other areas where you know we have to 
assist the group with setting the rules and the structure for the tutorial, assist the students identifying their own learning goals and the goals in general for the the group learning, encourage them to monitor the process and take a variety of roles. As healthcare providers, we may be faced with uh, taking different roles in our teams. So in tutorials, the students have to learn how to juggle different roles depending on the tutorial discussion, depending on the tutorial process. As tutors, we need to model productive ways in which we can provide feedback so that the students are able to learn how to provide feedback to their team members within the healthcare team context. And so at the end of the day, PBL is a mini lab to learn some skills for communication, collaboration. It's also a zone where you can process a lot of information quickly. It is somewhat dependent on the trainees coming prepared, though. And so talk to me a little bit about how you handle, because I think this is a common problem, too. How do you handle students who don't show up as prepared as you would like them to be? It is difficult because, you know, some tutors consider that that is only our role to handle the student who comes in unprepared, which is a lack of professional behavior. But I think it's also our role to make their peers see when a student comes unprepared. So when the group takes time to provide each other with feedback, the tutor can facilitate feedback towards that student who showed unprofessional behavior. So you just have to redirect the discussion and ask the students if they feel they learned from each other and if everybody brought in the best they could bring to the discussion in tutorial. Yeah, I mean, to me, we are all of us in self-governing professions for the most part, whether you're in rehab sciences and you have, you know, your professional requirements for your certification and you have to uphold that with the college. Same thing in medicine, same thing in nursing. I think that PBL can be a microcosm for people to learn how to have those conversations and support each other to achieve what it is that they hope to achieve as a group. And I think that when creating the group kind of contract, it it allows us to then maybe pick up on when someone is struggling. And I think that that's the other part of it too, is to role model and how, how do you suss out the difference between a colleague who's at risk because of other life things, or if they're just not doing their job. Most of the time we have such amazing students. They're, they're, not, mm-hmm. they're not doing, they're not slacking for any like self-imposed reason. It's usually because they have other stressors in their life, right? It's mm-hmm. their loved ones are sick. Their kids are sick. You know, a pandemic is going on. Things, things like that. Yeah, <laughs> External yeah, factors, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah, it's important not to be judgmental and find out the root mm-hmm. of the problem. And mm-hmm. our students are actually very sensitive to their own needs and the needs of their peers. And I think that they would know how to address any discomfort or any reason outside of the tutorial that the students would have for not being prepared. The problem is when the behavior repeats over and over in several tutorials, that's when that becomes a more serious issue. 
So Liliana, one of the problems that I've had in the past is trying to get learners to go a little bit deeper than kind of like the routine surface features of a case. What are some tips that you have for someone who struggled with that? Do you just ask more questions? Like, do you, do you kind of riff on some ideas? How do you get the group to go further into the science of things to understand the underlying structures? I think that we need to get the students to look deeper and further into the content that they discuss by asking questions about the strengths and the weaknesses of the information that they get. What are the different possible solutions to the problem? What seems to be most effective? Asking questions like, what's the relationship between X and Z? What is the logical flow? What is relevant to the discussion? Why is relevant? If not, where does the connection break down between what they said and the identified problem is? What is the value of the assumptions that they make? There's a time when we need to ask the students to analyze the information that they bring, classify the information that they bring, compare the information that they bring with information brought by other students, make the connections between the different parts and the whole of the information is basically trying to have the students think critically because this mm-hmm. is basically what what uh, we are trying to the students to to do in uh, tutorials yeah i like that like the idea of talking around compare and contrast well how is this similar to what you know this other student brought how is it that is there anything that links the two concepts those are really great probing questions because it helps them shift from focusing on what they brought which is i think one of the things that students are very proud of what they brought but then getting them to connect the dots i think between Mm -hmm. all the different students i think that's where pbl really comes alive how do we reconcile what she's talking about with what he's talking about to what they're talking about and actually putting all of that together so i I think that those are really great pro tip questions that you've just kind of uh, (laughs) articulated. So compare, contrast, connect, see if there's any evidence out there that refutes what they said. See if there's any contrasting perspectives on something, especially when you're getting into the level of society and social justice Mm -hmm. issues, when you're looking at systems. I think it's really interesting to say, okay, well, is there another system that works better? The higher order stuff, I think it's easier to see more divergence. I think when you're talking about whether or not, you know, this mechanic of the way that someone uses a specific technique or when it's applied, that can be a little bit more of a narrow focus. But zooming out can be a great way to help people see, okay, well, how would you put that within a program of, you know, rehabilitation for someone? How does that then interface with their other medical needs within a hospital? But the more you zoom out, the more you can understand how things are connected or how they're interdependent. Exactly. And everything, all the discussion is going around this one particular problem that the students are faced with in tutorials, because everything is around the healthcare problem that we present the students and which is the starting point of the discussion. So one more question that I have is really around preparation. So as a new tutor, and you're walking into PBL, what are some things that you can do as best practices to prepare yourself? 
how do you come fully prepared to meet the students where they are? I mean, we often come in with the medical or the scientific knowledge. We often have the healthcare experiences. And so maybe the prep is less about some of that kind of research stuff that we would maybe at the tip of our fingertips be able to look up very quickly. But how can I best prepare myself to understand where the students are going to be? Well, that's a good question, Teresa. We know that the literature shows that being a good facilitator in the problem-based tutorial, in the problem-based learning context is very important. And as you said, we all have that background, the medical background, the healthcare background. We kind of know what is going to be discussed. Is I think the main thing for a tutor is to facilitate the process. And if we go by Tuckman's group model of forming, storming, norming, and performing, watching where the group is in that development of this model in trying to facilitate the advancement of the group process to the next level. So, you know, if they are at the beginning and I'm a new tutor, I'm watching how the group is forming and I'm trying to facilitate uh, establishing clear objectives, both for the individual and for the group. But if the group is further down in their process, you know, they may be into the storming period where they establish processes, they establish structures, they build trust on each other. They, they or build sometimes this, it breaks down a little they, bit, right? Storming is <laughs> yeah, a little bit yeah. about that too, right? Disagreements yeah. and stuff. Yeah, for sure. Exactly. They're trying to build this uh, safe learning environment. Exactly. But sometimes there's hiccups, right? Because, you know, someone doesn't show up prepared or, you know, someone oversteps and corrects someone too much. And then yeah. that's, yeah. you know, they're trying to feel each other out. I think of storming as that phase where you're trying to just go, okay, all right, how are we going to work together? Let's feel out who exactly. needs to have this a certain way, who needs to have expectations set, who needs to make things more yeah. explicit. And then through that phase of storming, you you then create norms. And that's when you're talking yes. about norming, right? That's when yes. people start to just fall in line. Usually, this is probably three or four weeks in, there's a structure that seems to implicitly form around what it is that you're doing. If you start well from the beginning as a tutor and the group identified what are the objectives of the group and what, what are the rules of the group, then if in the storming period they have an issue that they need yeah. to clarify, then you bring the group back to the rules that they set at the beginning and, uh, and then they can go over that issue. Yeah, that's a, that's a really important point, I think, for new tutors is, uh, or even experienced tutor sometimes you forget because like yes. you're just you're just in that performing phase and you forget what it's like to start a new group again and so I do think that having those touch points and actually creating touchstones I call them or core concepts that are going to be how this group is going to conduct having them written out somewhere so they could refer back to them I guess right now on zoom it'd be a screen share <laughs> but in other times it might be just like a piece of paper that you whip out and and remind everyone these is this is what we said we're going to be the core conduct of our group, 
will help you get through this storming. And it's a, it is a form of not just forming, but it's actually a setting those norms and then yes. adhering to them. And so I think that it is part of that norming phase. And then performing happens after that, right? The yes. idea is that once everyone understands the rules of how to play, it's kind of like chess. Once you understand how the pieces move, you can play much better. And <laughs> it's like that show on Netflix, Queen's Gambit. You yes. can start seeing all the all the different permutations of how you're going to interplay. And I think that that's, that's where we need to go, right? I think that having the chess analogy is actually very powerful when I'm talking to junior teachers. You need to understand how every piece moves. And so everybody around that table in that PBL group or around the Zoom right now is going to be a different chess piece. And they're going to have different architecture to the way that they move, the way that they think, the way that they act and strategize. Now, can we put all those things down, make sure there's some common conduct around just understanding that we're all playing on this chessboard versus another one. (laughs) And then after that, you can, you might still have some conflict and you can navigate that by by returning to those touchstones and making sure that everyone's kind of adhering to the code of conduct that you set forward earlier on. But then normalizing when they do have conflict, that that's a process they need to go through in order to set the group norms and then ultimately perform. And hopefully... You could do that with a good in a couple of weeks <laughs> and, and you could get performing because usually most people have, you know, nine to 13 week term with their students. And so it really is something where understanding how to do this. And, and I find that as students get more senior in their training, they also know these rules implicitly and they can help set the terms and MF3, for instance, in the medical school is easier to teach than MF1 <laughs> for various reasons, because they've already been through this a couple of times. They've done the group work a couple of times, literally two times before. And so they understand how, what it's like on that third round. Yeah. And so I think that that's a gift we can give our students to understand concepts like this and make it very obvious and teach them a little bit about this group process work as well. So that's a really, really great idea. Setting the ground rules from the beginning and then getting the students back to review them when they need it. (laughs) All right. Well, thank you so much for your time today. That was a really engaging conversation and really made me think about what we could do. And I really enjoyed speaking with you today about this. It was a pleasure, Teresa. Thank you for inviting me. Wow, that was a really awesome first segment of the Mac PFD Spark podcast. And now, on to our second segment. Hello, everyone. I have a special treat for you. I have a mentor of mine, Dr. Jonathan Shabon, here on the show. And I'm going to be asking him about his very, very successful podcast that he's a part of. Jonathan, can you say hi to everyone? Hi, Teresa. Thanks for inviting me to be on the Spark podcast. This podcast is a fairly new podcast. So, you know, I'm still a rookie in in this world in some ways, but you've done so many episodes of QLime at this point. What are you up to at this point when we're recording this? I think it's like a couple hundred, right? We are pretty close to 300. We're not quite there. I don't think we've planned a celebratory 300th episode. When you asked me to talk a little bit about QLime, I went back to the archives and I had a little bit of, I'm not sure if it's chest pain or sticker shock, but I was astounded at how long we've been doing this and what the catalog looks like. Yeah. First of all, what is Keyline Podcast? Let's just take it down to the basics. For those of the people who are listening and like, what is this podcast and what does it have to do with pie? 
It's the key literature in medical education. That's where the key line piece comes from, a podcast. If your listeners haven't heard it, it makes me a little bit sad, but that's okay. We'd love for them to think about becoming part of the audience. And essentially, we are a podcast that tries to do all of the reading around health professions education that you feel guilty that you should do, but you never get time to do it. And essentially, the structure is we search the literature and bring what we think are really important, transformative publications and share it. And the venue is, there's four of us, Linda Snell from McGill, Lara Varpio from Uniformed Services University, and Jason Frank from University of Ottawa. We dissect a paper in about 20 minutes, offering some context, maybe some critiques about methodology. And it's free open access. The podcast is sponsored by the Royal College of Physicians and Surgeons of Canada. And so you can skip reviewing all the tables of contents of your favorite meta journal, because hopefully we're doing that for you. Excellent. So it's basically a bit of digital scholarship. Yeah. I would frame it as a knowledge translation project. The number needed to read in most top medical journals is somewhere around 14. It's probably actually getting bigger, meaning if you are going to read The Lancet or New England or JAMA, you have to read 14 articles before you find one that's going to impact your practice. And so that issue of capacity is one that's also common in health professions education. So we don't know what the number looks like. The tagline for Keyline is the number needed to listen. We think that every episode we've chosen an article that will have an influence either on your own thinking about research design or your own application of theory to your teaching or education practice. And we're trying to find things that are impactful. And we unpack the article, we rate it based on its methodology, and then we rate it based on its educational impact. Well, I was thinking more that it's kind of scholarship in my mind because, well, Ernest Boyer had defined Boyer's model of scholarship as being kind of like four, sometimes five. They talk about key aspects, right? There's this scholarship of discovery. That's like, you know, basic research. That's something we're all familiar with. There's the scholarship of integration, which involves kind of knowledge synthesis across disciplines or across topics within discipline or sometimes across time. And I think Keyline fits really well there because it basically integrates a lot of things. You you don't just talk about a specific article. You kind of talk about the field around the article. And I think that that's why I have found it very useful and engaging to listen to, especially when I was very junior and didn't know the literature very well. It's like the contextualization of that literature that really brought me to really appreciate the podcast. And then obviously there's other uh, forms of scholarship, like scholarship of application, which is probably what we do when we do you know, RCTs of different clinical medications or protocols in the hospital. And then there's the scholarship of teaching and learning, which you could argue that this is a little bit of that too, and knowledge translating some of the great works that people do into the earbuds of many of your listeners to really get them to change their practice around teaching and learning. So I guess it kind of fits in a bunch of different scholarly tracks. And that's kind of why I was thinking that it's a, it's a little bit of scholarship. Yeah, this is not Journal Club podcast where you, it's death by a thousand cuts and you reach some kind of application nihilism about why it's a flawed study. We have wide ranging discussions about how this manuscript that we're discussing integrates with the field or with other themes and we try to make connections. And we get lots of feedback from our listeners that say, can you do a, a deeper dive on topic A or B, or can you help us understand what is meant by this? You use some shorthand or you assume some, some background knowledge. And so we try to pick up those themes in subsequent episodes. So this is probably a, a rabbit hole we're going to dive into, Teresa. 
But yeah, the idea of digital scholarship or social media-based scholarship is a topic that's near and dear to my heart. You talked about Boyer. I mean, I think in the same sentence, you should probably talk about Lee Shulman from the Carnegie Foundation, who broadened scholarship into a term that legitimized the work of educators. And I really borrow from Van Mel's description of what education scholarship is, which is it's this bigger umbrella term that includes both research, the classic scholarship of discovery, and innovation, where we take a new idea that's influential in our academic world. But both research and innovation need to rest on existing theory and build upon previous understanding and knowledge. It needs to be original and not duplicative. It needs to undergo the processes of peer review where it's being criticized, critiqued, refined, and it needs to be broadly disseminated and accessible so that it advances the field forward so that people can build on that work subsequently in an iterative fashion. You know, with these emerging digital platforms, whether it's the podcast or the blog or whether it's video, the accessibility of people as scholars and the ability to get past issues around publication and dissemination, that's really been flattened. And that hierarchy that used to exist with print media um, no longer is a hierarchy that is insurmountable. Now, just putting something on YouTube or just putting something on Libsyn or Apple Podcast doesn't make it scholarly. There's still rigorous criteria. But the barrier from a production point of view has, and the accessibility to a large audience with these new emerging digital media is really exciting. The Keyline Podcast started Oh, I I looked at it just in preparation for our conversation. Uh, I can't believe it started close to eight years ago. And that's why we built up such a big catalog. But we've gone from, I think, probably just the four of us listening to the podcast to to the point where we have in excess of 300 to 400,000 downloads a year. And so that speaks to the reach that these new platforms can touch. We have people listening in 40 countries around the world. We still have rigor. We still are applying that scholarship of integration and of application. I think of the Keyline podcast as really a knowledge translation medium, but the impact that I can have with my work and contribution as a co-host of the podcast, it's just a bigger scale because of the way that these platforms have allowed us to touch people that print media would never have done 10 years ago. Yeah. And I think that it's just opening up a different way to digest the information because I think the formality of journal clubs, sometimes we're a little bit nihilistic. Like you said, you, you can always find a flaw in every paper. And I work out of most journal clubs thinking, huh, well, that was a good exercise in, in <laughs> thinking <Futility>. through things. <laughs> Futility, yeah. And it's great for learning critical appraisal because obviously, as you and I know, both know we have to say evidence-based medicine at least once every so often or I they revoke our faculty privileges at McMaster if I don't say EBM. Yeah, I've, I've been told there's gremlins that might come and get me at night. So I don't know. <laughs> but the idea would be that I think critical appraisal is actually super important and have been obviously advancing the field and, and helping people learn how to critically appraise social media-based and internet-based resources writ large. That being said, I do also truly believe that sometimes the same way to do things isn't always the best way to do things. And so translating what you used to to see in a scholarly discussion with three or four colleagues in a journal club and translating that into a medium where you do a little bit of the background research, splice in, you know, your thoughts on the methods of the paper and then bring everyone up at the same point to the take-home points of why this piece of work, this scholarly contribution that someone has really toiled over actually adds to someone else's practice. I think that's a really key part of what we can do. 
I thank you so much for, you know, basically being in the earbuds and on my car stereo so I can yell at the four of you when I disagree at you and engage with that science in a different way. So I found it very enjoyable to have that. Well, thank you for that. Engagement is one of the principles that we really strive to do rather than it being simply a platform for us to promulgate our pet peeves, which to be fair, and I must confess, if you listen to the podcast, you'll see there's a whole bunch of pet peeves that I love to have rants and diatribes about. But engagement is what we're looking for. Now, it's not really conversation with our audience back. We It's a delayed fashion. We do get lots of letters and we try to respond when we can and to integrate some of those points that have been raised in subsequent episodes. But we've seen engagement in other ways. We've had education researchers write to us and say that they have used key lime in courses that they are delivering, that it's compulsory part of the syllabus in different grad school programs. We most recently had an education researcher reach out to us and indicate that they had done a randomized control trial using key lime as the intervention for a faculty development initiative. And they are subsequently publishing the results of key lime as an instructional intervention for faculty development. And so it's great for us to be able to offer this open access resource and to really support the health professions education community. All four of the co-hosts have been great recipients of the generosity of that community and in the way that we've learned and developed and been sponsored and mentored. And this is an opportunity for us to continue to support the community as it, as it grows. All right. So do you have a favorite episode that everyone could like start out with if there's one from all of them that you enjoyed? Oh, that's like asking which is your favorite kid. I would say the episodes that are later in the catalog probably have a higher production quality. We have been grassroots in the most basic sense of grassroots. And so our production quality has gotten better. Many thanks to our editor, Wendy Jemmett, who has to put up probably with technological foibles that no civil human being should ever have to do. I don't want to call people out, but let's just agree that people's initials who are JF and LS have a technological savviness that sometimes uh, threatens the audio quality of our, of our podcast, but they're coming along. I would say that we have a, some typical episodes, but then we also have a holiday issue, which is usually a lot more fun. We have a methodologic consult, which is much more technical. And then on occasion, we'll do kind of classic episodes. So if you wanted something that kind of balanced between here is what the rigor of the conversation looks like versus here's what the entertainment engagement piece would look like. I would direct people to the Keyline Classics episode from 2019. And that was a live audience recording that we did at the International Conference on Residency Education. And very quickly, we moved through a whole number of key classic articles in the literature. So if you're new to health professions education and you want to say, what are the stuff I should start reading because I haven't read anything yet? That episode will get you three to nine papers, depending if you listen to all three episodes in a row that are classic that you can't miss. And you'll also see some of the quick engagement. You won't get hung up on a real deep dive into a different type of qualitative methodology or some complex type of analysis. And so it's a nice way to kind of slowly wade into the pool before you hit the deep end. And it's not just med-ed. I mean, that is for more of the acronym than anything else, but it definitely is more broadly health professions education. But I don't think that makes a very good, catchy title. So you've shied away from it. 
<laughs> kind of, yeah, exactly. So from that point of view, I think that if you're not in the school of medicine and you're from the school of rehab or the school of nursing, I think that you'll find it actually quite useful. And it does sample from more broadly health professions, education journals, actually goes even beyond that. I mean, you've reviewed stuff from PLOS and from other of the big journals like JAMA and, and some of the other journals as well. So I think that's kudos to you all. And I would say that one of the things that I did starting from when I was a meta scholar to even still now, I encourage a lot of my trainees in the clinician educator diploma program and others who are interested in med ed to actually flip the classroom on themselves. So I asked them to read the paper first and then listen to the Healing podcast episode afterwards. And I found that that's a great way to kind of like brush up on your own methods, see if who you align with. And sometimes it's very scary, John. Clearly, I'm your apprentice because when you speak, I'm like, yeah, that's what I thought. And you've brainwashed me and I can tell. (laughs) I can make that self-diagnosis now. (laughs) Resistance is futile. Assimilation is all. (laughs) Exactly. And so the idea there is that it'll help you kind of maybe become a little sharper, hear other people's opinions. It's kind of like when you do peer review for a journal. You'll give your opinion, but it's always nice when they give you the rest of the opinions as well, just to see how other people saw it. And in that constructivist vein, I think that's really a big thing that you can do. I would just pick up that thread that you articulated. We're speaking to a health professions education community and not specifically that small branch within it, which is medical education. The acronym works way better and the logo of a a line with headphones just kind of all works. But the issues of professions education is one that is common across it. And so issues of selection, admissions, instructional design, assessment, professional development, it's unique to health professions, but it's not so specialized that our conversation is specific to one health profession to another. And you'll see that we have primary literature coming from different health professions, whether it's rehab science or nursing. We think there's a good representation in our catalog. All right. So final question is really just for other aspiring podcasters out there that might be listening to this. Do you have any pro tips for all of us who are getting in the podcast game alongside you and making our own digital scholarship? I think the big pro tip, and everyone usually just starts with the technical details, and there are a number of blogs and a number of resources that you can go to. I think that's a mistake. I think the very first question you need to ask is, what is my audience? And who am I speaking to? And what is the goal or what is the purpose of this podcast? It's not simply, oh, I think I could do a podcast or I have some things to say, but you really have to refine and understand who are you speaking to? And it can't be kind of an abstract sense. You really have to say, I have an archetype of the person who is on their treadmill or is in is doing their commute, although I guess the commute doesn't really exist too much right now in our socially distanced world. But you have to imagine who's that person I'm trying to have a conversation with. And once you can articulate that in a crisp, tight, clear way, I think you now know the direction, the style, the conversation, the arrangement about how you want to put together your podcast. And until you know that, don't worry about what mic, what platform, what the show notes should look like. I think you really have to have a sense of who's your audience and who you're talking to. That's a great pro tip. The final question I have for you is really around, you've had quite a bit of longevity around this. And do you have any inspiration for their listeners? Like what keeps you going with this podcast? Like why do you keep doing more? I mean, you're almost at 300 episodes. So there must be some secret sauce in there with your podcast and the crew that you have. For me, it's very clear that this serves my own professional development needs. So I always try when I commit to projects that I need to do off the corner of my table to ensure that I'm getting multiple wins from it. 
And so I suffer the same guilt that all of our audience does, which is the literature is big and vast, and I feel guilty that I'm not keeping up with it. Preparing for the Key Lime podcast and having conversations with my co-hosts and friends is a force function for me to do the work that makes me a successful health professions educator, which is keep a thumb in the, the table of contents of all the major med-ed and HPE journals, continue to understand emerging themes, and be challenged by the conversations I have with the co-hosts about my own learning and my own ongoing professional development. And so doing the podcast is basically my personal version of doing that CPD that I need to be doing on a regular basis. And because it gets booked into my calendar, it's just a force function. And so it's not me being aspirational to say, I'm going to keep up with stuff. My nightstand is covered in clinical journals that I, well, I guess it's not, it's virtually covered because it's off, off my iPad, but there's a big stack of PDFs in my clinical world that I'm not reading with the same systematic and progressive way that I'm reading all of the education journals that I'm doing. So key line for me serves that personal need. Well, that's a really good place to leave it off. So I think that for all our listeners, hopefully this inspires you to think about how you could find those multiple wins and actually be engaged in your community, giving service back to others and yet maybe have a little bit of corner of that that serves your own purpose. So thanks so much for chatting with us today. And we'll have to bring you back for another episode to talk about other topics another time. Thanks so much, Teresa. My last shameless plug is that if you're not a listener, you can find the Key Literature in Medical Education podcast where you listen to your podcasts, Apple, Libsyn, whatever platform that you use to track. Awesome. Thanks so much again, and we'll catch you next time. Thank you so much for tuning in to the Mac PFD Spark podcast. Just so you know, this podcast has been brought to you by the McMaster Faculty of Health Sciences and specifically the Office of Continuing Professional Development and the Program for Faculty Development. If you're interested in finding out more about what we can offer for faculty development, check out our website at www.macpfd.ca. That's www.macpfd.ca. Many of our events are actually web events that are free. Finally, I'd like to thank our sound engineer, Mr. Nick Hoskin, who has been an amazing asset to our team. Thanks so much, Nick, for all that you do. And also thank you to Scott Holmes for supplying us the music that you've been listening to. All right, so until next time, this is Mac PFD Spark signing off.